If there is a positive lining right now, it's that the companies that were not particularly committed to actually achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion are using the fears of a recession to quietly make their exit. Hello, and welcome to Working It from the Financial Times with me, Isabel Berwick. As the next US election nears, there's currently a potent mix of polarized politics and a tightening economic situation. Some high-profile chief diversity officers have left their roles at big corporates. Spending on diversity programs is being squeezed. It sounds like a bleak outlook, but is it? To find out, I spoke to Lily Zeng. That's their voice you heard at the top of the show. They're a well-known diversity, equity and inclusion strategist and consultant. And I spoke to them to get a handle on what's happening in the US now and what's next for DEI programmes. I've seen many DEI professionals laid off and the medium and large size corporations making these layoffs, I haven't seen many indications that they are in dire financial straits. Instead, I've seen anxiety. Leaders are saying, we might lose profit in the future. And so we're going to proactively fire all of these employees and lay off a bunch of employees and maybe we'll hire them back when times are good. I've certainly seen some people criticize the current decisions as essentially leaders using this threat of a recession to make choices that would have been harder to justify otherwise. Yeah. And I'm interested in the leaders that were really not invested in DEI and were just, you know, putting the black squares on their Instagram accounts after the George Floyd murder. Does this crunch mean that people who are really invested will show up more or be more visible? You know, will the gap be bigger? If there is a positive lining right now, it's that the companies that were not particularly committed to actually achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion are using this convenient political situation, the fears of a recession, to quietly make their exit. Frankly, it's been interesting from my own perspective because I work primarily with companies and leaders that are invested in achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion over the long haul. The interest in this long-term, sustainable, outcomes-driven DEI work has actually not shifted at all in the last two to three years. It's the folks who have asked for things like, Lily, come in and deliver a a 30-minute training or lead a 60-minute courageous conversation or give a quick talk on unconscious bias to fix our workplace suddenly I'm seeing those requests disappear because, well, first of all, (laughs) very few of them are effective. Most of them are somewhat expensive window dressing. And I think it's telling that those requests have dramatically dropped while the long-term, sustainable, measurable DEI work hasn't changed at all in terms of interest. So leaders and organizations that were serious about DEI are doubling down while those who never took it that seriously, well, they still aren't taking it that seriously. I hope our listeners will think measures that make workplaces fairer and more inclusive are worth pursuing because it's the right thing to do, one, but also because there's lots of research showing that more diverse businesses tend to perform better. A 2019 McKinsey analysis showed that companies with the most gender-diverse executive teams were 25% more likely to have above-average profitability than companies with the least gender-diverse leadership teams. And the figures for companies with the most ethnically and culturally diverse leadership groups were even starker. 
they were 36% more likely to have above average profitability than the companies with the least ethnically diverse executive teams. So if you do want to be better at DEI, how should you go about it? I asked Lily for their take. The common pitfalls that I see companies falling into include the following. One, they don't actually know what they're trying to solve or fix or achieve with DEI work. I see this very, very often. Leaders will essentially see some sort of DEI intervention and without doing any work to understand their problems, without doing any work to understand their present state, their DEI landscape, their DEI health, they will say, I'm going to invest in this solution without any clue about what the problem is. And that sets leaders up for failure for the obvious reason being they might choose the solution that has absolutely nothing to do with their problem. After that, I think it's expectation setting. Most leaders either see DEI-related interventions as either nice-to-haves, they don't really achieve anything, they make people happy, or they go on the complete flip side and say, wow, this 30-minute training is going to single-handedly fix my company's toxic culture, neither of which are effective or realistic or accurate. And then finally, a common pitfall that I see with leaders who are seeking out this work is they don't do any follow-up. What I tell leaders all the time is that 10% of the work goes into facilitating the training. 90% of the work goes into preparing your organization for the training or the assessment or the workshop or the talk. And afterwards, following up on the findings, the skills, the abilities, the knowledge that that training or workshop or assessment revealed. I see very few leaders doing that. Okay, so that's what unsuccessful DEI interventions look like. But what about successful interventions? What do they have in common? They start with leaders not seeking out DEI services until they understand what's going on. And that can look like doing focus groups, looking through exit interview data, reviewing people analytics data, um, bringing in assessment professionals to survey their workforce. There are many ways leaders can understand what's going on. So that's, that's good practice, number one. Two is to set good expectations. There is no DEI intervention that is a silver bullet. There is nothing I can deliver in 90 minutes that will single-handedly fix an organization. That's not how organizational change works. You need a steady series of interventions that are reinforced from multiple angles. If I deliver a training, leaders' incentives need to be lined up with that. If they think about it like change management, that's a long-term protracted effort that requires every single stakeholder and constituent get involved rather than just a one-and-done, 90-minute, you know, fire-and-forget sort of situation. And then finally, the follow-up is so, so, so important. The actual training or the workshop or the conversation is 10%. And it's useful, it's essential, but it's what happens afterwards that decides if that initiative was successful or not. And I see too many leaders invest in that one bright light and then go back to business as usual. I really like the way you refer to it as change management, because that's essentially what it is. But people don't often say that, do they? No, no. Usually DEI, like I mentioned, is treated like event programming. So I will see many of my client organizations very proudly give me a laundry list of DEI interventions. They'll say, oh, Lily, we invited a trainer in Q1. 
to give a 60 minute workshop. Then we had a cultural celebration in Q2 to celebrate this holiday. Then in Q3, we sat employees down to talk about race. And then in Q4, you know, we decided to host a women's forum. And the thing is, none of these things relate to each other. None of these things were connected to anything else in the organization. And none of these things had any coherent relationship to what I call a theory of change, right? This broader strategy of how we get from a point A to a point B. And you've talked about data, which I imagine is very important. Is is there any progress without data? And how many companies actually do track these things? Yeah, data is so, so important. Can there be progress without data? My answer is yes, but you can't measure it or see it. So there might as well not be progress. Because, for example, let's say one outcome that I care about is, I don't know, employee feelings of belonging. If you don't collect any data and you say, well, belonging is important, I'm going to start an employee resource group and give them a chance to connect with each other. Maybe they'll feel more belonging. And a year later, what do you do? You say, well, I sure hope it worked. Now, on the other hand, if you start your initiative saying, okay, let's do a quick belonging survey, and maybe you find out that 90% of white employees feel like they belong, but only 60% of black employees feel like they belong. Well, now you've identified a 30-point gap. You can talk to those employees and say, hey, what's a barrier to you feeling belonging? Maybe they'll say things like, I don't feel like I have enough community. I feel like my manager doesn't understand me. You draw directly on that data and you say, okay, we are going to hold leaders more accountable to the behavior that happens on their team. We're going to offer some new training to managers. And sure, we're going to organize that employee resource group. You survey again a year later, maybe you find 90% belonging for white people, but belonging for black folks has risen to 80%. At which point you can say, our interventions likely resulted in a 20% bump in belonging. That's great. Let's see which ones people like the most. Let's do a little more of that. Let's tweak our efforts. Let's keep going because we still need to close that gap and keep on going from there. You collect the data, but you also have to act on it. It's a kind of a reflection of experience, which is really interesting way to look at it. And I don't hear that very often, actually. Quite a few companies collect data and they do nothing with it. Yeah. Which actually does more harm than good. Because imagine the trust it takes for an employee who may be getting discriminated against or maybe getting mistreated in the workplace to share those experiences with a survey. They pour their experience of discrimination or mistreatment into the survey and then they wait and nothing gets better. Imagine what's going to happen the next time they get a survey. They're not going to fill it out. It feels from my point of view as a journalist that some managers and executives see DEI as an exercise in avoiding liability, you know, like learning not to say the wrong thing, not offending people, not causing lawsuits. Is that a common way to think about DI and how, how can we flip that narrative? I think it's an extremely crude way to think about this work, right? DEI is problem solving at the end of the day. There are problems in your organization, which honestly, if they all came to light, might very well result in a lawsuit. And DEI is about proactively seeking out and solving these problems before they become lawsuits and being responsible for the challenges in your workforce and learning about these issues. None of this is particularly rocket science, is it? Why? It's really not why, rocket why science. Why are people so clueless? I think it's because DEI is a very charged topic, right? And so oftentimes 
the emotional charge of these conversations can get to leaders and they can feel that engaging in the conversation itself is more stressful than just pretending like it doesn't exist or ignoring it. I've been interested in diversity, equity and inclusion for a long time because it makes sense as the right thing to do, but also on a business level. And I can't understand why more people don't see that. And it has been in the last few years a huge shift. Loads more people have got involved. Companies were making big commitments. And that seems to have just gone slightly by the by. I'm worried, but talking to Lily did make me more optimistic. Because, as they said, structural change is needed and the people who are prepared to put in the work will still do it and they will make that structural change. So I really hope that things do get better and progress is made and that the data-driven approach to diversity, equity and inclusion becomes embedded in every department because we cannot leave this all on the shoulders of chief diversity officers and their teams. It's something that we all have to take on board and I'm very grateful to Lily for explaining so lucidly the way forward. Thanks to Lily Zeng for this episode. If you've enjoyed working it, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're an FT subscriber, you can get ahead of the trends at work by signing up to our free Working It newsletter. There's original reporting and the best workplace content from across the FT, plus the office therapy advice column. Sign up at ft.com forward slash newsletters. This episode of Working It was produced by Misha Frankel-Duval with mix from Simon Panayi. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragossa and Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. Thanks for listening. 